My name is Maggie Thompson. I'm here for an hour on monuments. Uh, I'm with Generation Progress, and we've got a lot to talk about this hour. You know, we've got the good, the bad, and the ugly for monuments, and we've got uh, our first half hour, we're going to be talking about the new national campaign to be taking down Confederate monuments across the country before we move on in the second half of the hour to talk a little bit about our national monuments and our public lands, the ones we need to protect. So we've got a full hour coming up. Uh, Please join us if you'd like to call in with questions. Again, this is the Leslie Marshall Show. Feel free to call in at 888 Six Leslie. That's eight 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 six five three seven five four three. And I, we have two guests for us at the top of the hour. I'm here, first of all, with Connor Maxwell from the Center for American Progress's Progress 2050 team, also a proud University of Virginia grad. So spent a lot of um, his life in Charlottesville. Welcome to the show, Connor. Happy to be here. And then on the phone, we have state, North Carolina State Assemblyman Greg Meyer, who represents the part of North Carolina uh, where UNC Chapel Hill is. Greg, welcome to the show. Hi, Maggie. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's get started here. So this um, conflict over Confederate monuments has really just exploded in the last week post Charlottesville and the white supremacy protests that happened there. I know a lot of people have been hearing about those protests and what's been happening on the ground. But really, I think that uh, focusing on this concerted campaign that progressive organizations are putting together to make these monuments come down across America is something that we really wanted to focus this hour on. So, Connor, I wanted to start with you because as a UVA grad, this is something that you've really been living in real time and it's really impacted your community. Um, Can you just give us an overview over how uh, the Robert E. Lee Monument uh, fights sort of got started in Charlottesville and how that really took us to the white supremacist protests that have now sparked this national outrage? Sure, sure. So uh, more than a year ago, Charlottesville residents called for the removal of these statues. Um, Charlottesville is a pretty progressive town, and there was a general recognition that these statues represent Uh, white supremacy that they always have. Um, And the city council uh, responded to that call by setting up a blue ribbon commission, uh, spending months weighing its options to remove the statues, uh, speaking to residents, and they ultimately voted to get rid of them. And that decision really brought what was simmering just beneath the surface to a boil for the first time. White supremacists Mm -hmm. from the community from across Virginia and from across the country descended on on Charlottesville and rallied around the statue. They brought batons and guns and torches, attacked residents, and ultimately ended up uh, killing a young woman. Uh, This sort of sparked a a national conversation about what to do with these monuments. These monuments have become a lightning rod for white supremacy. And so what you're seeing across the country is – everyday Americans standing up to white supremacy, calling on their uh, elected officials to take down these monuments once and for all, and calling for a time of national healing and moving forward. Absolutely. And Assemblyman Meyer, I'm sure that when you were watching these images come from Charlottesville and knowing that this all started 
over a statue of Robert E. Lee that that had to feel familiar given sort of what's happened in your district in particular in the statue of Silent Sam on the UNC campus. Can you just give a, a sort of a little bit of background of how this has played out in your district and in North Carolina generally? Because I think what's so striking about North Carolina and a few other states is the actions that the Republican General Assembly has taken to really at the state level protect these monuments. Yeah, so there's a statute at the entrance to the University of North Carolina called Silent Sam. It's a Confederate monument that was put up in 1913. And uh, that that means that we've had about 104 years of dialogue about is this statute good or bad. We've been talking about Silent Sam for a long, long time, and it still stands there. Uh, the North Carolina General Assembly, I think, with some... Uh, forethought as to, you know, the fact that our society might end up in a place like where we are today, passed a law uh, over democratic objections in 2015 that basically makes it impossible to remove any uh, historical artifacts or monuments from public land uh, without an act of the General Assembly. And so um, a local government that wanted to remove uh, monuments that were on their property or a university that might want to remove monuments from its property have to go through the legislature to do that. And that means that where we've seen progress in places like New Orleans and, um, you know, the ongoing efforts in Charlottesville, uh, things are still largely at a standstill here in North Carolina because of that law. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what's so striking about what happened in North Carolina is that it really stripped cities and local communities of, of control. You know, as we're thinking about how we, we win this effort across the country to take down some of these symbols and, and monuments, it seems that, you know, the logical thing and what a lot of people are doing is they're reaching out to their mayors and city council, but that right has really been taken away from them in North Carolina. Yeah, and so what that means is that not only are we having a hard time with the statewide removal of Confederate monuments, but we don't even have local communities that come to some consensus about what to do with these monuments, being able to control what's going on in their backyards. Yeah, exactly. And I know I just saw yesterday that there were hundreds of students out on campus, uh, once again, advocating, asking um, for the, the statue to be taken down out of their community. So this is happening in real time down there. Yeah, and, and so we have a standoff because the, the governor said he wants them to come down. The legislature said that they don't. The students are protesting, you know, and, and reasonably I think we, we should be concerned about additional uh, safety issues. And it would be better for, for not for moral reasons, just for safety reasons to not take this issue straight directly to the streets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, Connor, just going back to you in terms of, you know, these monuments in places that don't have laws restricting their removal, uh, like North Carolina does, um, has really started coming down one after another in Baltimore, Lexington, Austin, even Helena, Montana. I think that's one of the most striking things to me was the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center has a map of where these, I think it's 700 uh, Confederate monuments are on public land across the country, and they are most definitely not all in the South, um, which is, I, th I think most people um, might not even realize that they have a monument in their town. But, you know, what, before we go to our break, just can you walk people through sort of what the, the steps are to, to find out if they have a monument in their town and ask to have it removed? What's the first step that a person can take to take action in their own city? 
Sure, sure. So uh, you're right. There are over 700 monuments across the country and over 1,500 um, symbols of the Confederacy from roads to schools to bridges uh, to statues. And they're from Alabama to Massachusetts, Georgia to Idaho. And the Southern Property Law Center maintains this really terrific map that shows where all of these monuments are preserved. And you can type in your zip code on this map and find if there's one near you. And there are a couple handy tools. Generation Progress actually has one where you can write your mayor um, and ask for the monument near you to be taken down. Uh, So I think that's a a great tool. And I think you're seeing a lot of people paying attention and using these tools to fight back against white supremacy in their communities. Yeah, and for folks that want to follow the conversation online and see what's going on with this fight, um, if you follow the hashtag online, take them down, um, that's hashtag take them down. And that's where a lot of the organizations and a lot of these are local organizations and activists that are coming together to ask for these removals to move their communities on. That's another great place to go for information. So this is the Leslie Marshall Show. We're going to take a short break. After the break, we're going to dig in a little bit more about the fight to take down Confederate monuments across the United States. We'll be right back. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. Before the break, we were talking about national efforts um, and efforts happening locally to take down Confederate monuments across the country. I'm here in studio with Connor Maxwell from Progress 2050 and also State Assemblyman from North Carolina, Greg Meyer. Welcome back. So I really, you know, before the break, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the how the white supremacist af- sort of actions in Charlottesville touched off this national conversation about monuments. But a lot of these monuments, these fights started much earlier than that. Um, And I wanted to go to you, Assemblyman Meyer. One of the things that really struck me about what you said is that uh, the statue on the UNC campus that sort of has caused so much controversy wasn't erected until 1913. And it seems that a lot of these uh, monuments weren't actually erected right after the Civil War, but rather um, were put up at a time really coinciding with the rise of white nationalism in this country. And, and Congressman, uh, I hope I can jump in here ahead of you for just a second. Um, I think it's also important to note, as we discuss the statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, that this rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan happened uh, just three years before the statue was erected in Charlottesville. Uh, hundreds of Charlottesville residents marched up to the tomb of Thomas Jefferson and burned a cross just three years before erecting that statue in a whites-only park. Oh, it's just unbelievable. So, you know, I think that the, there's a lot of history here um, that it's good for people to be aware of as they're thinking about the best way to remove these monuments and um, do it in a way so that people don't forget um, all of that history. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Assemblyman, what, 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 in your opinion, is the most effective action for people to take to have these monuments removed and to do it in a way so that we're remembering that history and making sure that it never happens again. Well, here's my take on the history. I don't think that anyone, as long as the United States stands, is ever going to forget the history of the Civil War nor of slavery. Uh, Those two things define our existence as much as the American Revolution does. And so removing the monuments in no way ends the study of history. The monuments themselves 
are not just monuments to the people who died fighting the Civil War. They are monuments to a racial hierarchy, and that's what the what you really get in looking at the history of when were these monuments put up. Most of them were put up during the beginning of the Jim Crow era, and then more were put up during the Civil Rights era. And so in both times, they were being erected to show Southerners, and even in places where they're in states outside of the South, that they were being erected to show that there, even though the Civil War was done and slavery was defeated, that there was still a racial hierarchy in this country and that people need to respect it. Uh, the best monuments of our country are ones that, uh, that call us to our higher ideals and celebrate the times that Americans come together. These are monuments that were created to divide people. They continue to divide people. I think that we can put them in a context in museums and other places where we can study how they were used. But if we want to have memorials to people who died because of slavery in the Civil War, then let's create memorials that recognize that there were uh, people, black and white and other races, both enslaved and free, who died. And let's be cognizant of our entire history, not just the history of white supremacy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we've got a few callers on the line um, with questions about this is obviously touching a nerve. So I wanted to just kick it over to Bill, um, who's in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, um, who had a question. Bill, are you on the line? Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, go, go ahead. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I live in Charlottesville. And to be perfectly honest, I haven't had a real hard feeling one way or the other on the subject. But a friend of mine and I were in a discussion the other day about, you know, the whole thing about removal of statues and whatnot. And his question, at least, and I had no answer, so hopefully maybe somebody there can have an answer, was, you know, this whole thing might be politically motivated more so than slavery motivated in terms of there was nothing said about these statues for the most part when Obama was in office. But afterwards, since nobody likes Trump, is it some sort of tie in with that? I, I don't really know. And I guess, you know, there's more to the Charlottesville story than I think most people realize. In Charlottesville, at least, the whole idea of statue removal was brought forth by our vice mayor. I think his name was Wes Bellamy. He was a black council person or mayor or something like that. I don't, I don't really follow politics that much. But it was interesting that the member who, I guess, might be one of the late leaders of the uh, supposed of the white supremacist movement, he actually called out Mr. Bellamy on the fact that he had made, he himself, a black individual, made some racist comments in the past. So I thought it was like a situation of the pot calling the kettle black, and yet it was this particular government official that wanted the statues removed. So I thought that was kind of an ironic twist. Uh, so there are more things in there that, that I'm not yeah. super privy to, but uh, I was just wondering what your take yeah. was on all of that. Yeah, you know, we were just talking um, before the break about how, um, you know, President Trump's reaction to this really um, fanned the flames and politicized something that I think most of us would agree is not political. It's about healing um, our country and moving on. But I know, Connor, um, you know, if you want to jump in here, um, having lived in Charlottesville among these statues. Yeah, so that's a, a really terrific question. Um, and I, I think, Bill, that uh, if you if you'll look back in time, this discussion has been going on for a few years now. Um, and uh, Wes Bellamy was one of the first people to start talking ab about this, but you know he represents, um, I think, the interests of a lot of Charlottesville's black residents. And I think that um, if if you you know talk to a lot of, of folks in our community down there, um, they'll tell you that these statues have always been an uncomfortable symbol for um, black people down there. Um, and so I think that 
Trump being elected certainly fanned the flames, but those flame those flames have definitely been there for decades, if not longer. And you know, he's Trump has recently come out and in support of these statues, and it's no surprise. I think it's uh, another just another dog whistle, like his rhetoric surrounding immigration. You know, talking about preserving our history, preserving our culture. But I think we need to take a deeper look into what that history and what that culture is that we want to be preserving. Right. And I think that, you know, um, Assemblyman Meyer, one of the things that this is making me think of is that for you all, this is um, like you were just saying, this is this is not a new fight. And also, uh, you know, on this issue, um, President Trump is not unique or necessarily different from um, sort of the Republicans in the General Assembly that you're working with that um, sort of are on that same side of this issue. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about how um, to approach this or how politics are playing into this from your perspective. Well, you know, I, I think anytime I hear the word politicize, um, it, it cues me to the fact that people are uncomfortable with change because we don't use that term when we're trying to promote something that we want to change. We only use it when we find a change that we're uncomfortable with and that change is coming through politics and we want to find a way to label it. And um, that's no surprise in this context. I mean, we can anticipate that there will be uh, lots of people who will be uncomfortable with the change of trying to take down these monuments. I've been hearing from many of them uh, who are my constituents, including some Democrats, who don't want to take down the monuments. The, but the ongoing battle of this, I mean, I agree with Connor, goes back a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I, I know at least in this community that there have been conversations and protests and things that go back before the Obama presidency, through the Obama presidency, um, but uh, that uh, President Trump's comments um, have really made people feel like uh, this is a time to take a stand because people are really objecting to having a president who is so comfortable embracing a white racist uh, nationalist movement. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time for the show, but thank you so much. We have North Carolina State Assemblyman Greg Meyer and Connor Maxwell from Progress 2050. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. We're back on the Leslie Marshall Show Monuments Hour. We spent the last segment talking about sort of a a more controversial type of monuments, Confederate monuments and the campaigns to take them down. But we wanted to spend this hour talking about a very different kind of monuments, our public lands, and how this uh, presidency seems to like the Confederate ones a whole lot more than they are valuing (laughs) our national public lands. Um, So in the studio with me, I have Christy Goldfuss, who's the Vice President of Environment and Energy Policy here at the Center for American Progress and also used to head up the Council on Environmental Quality at the Obama White House. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you, Maggie. It's great to be here. And then on the phone, um, on the ground, fighting this fight, we have a good friend, Annette Magnus, who's the executive director of Battleborn Progress in Nevada. Nevada, uh, Annette, are you there? I am here. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Um, well, so we have a lot to talk about. And, you know, when it comes to this fight, um, we have a deadline of Thursday that I want people uh, to keep in mind because we're going to ask you to take action at the end of the show. But, Christy, I just am going to start with you. Um, there's been a lot of bad news coming out of the administration on climate and the environment. I know a lot of people knew about 
President Trump pulling us out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, but I don't think people totally um, have as good of a grasp on how this administration is attacking and sort of waging war on our public land. So could you walk through what this review of 27 national monuments is and what its implications are? Sure, I would be happy to. Uh, So the Antiquities Act is a policy that allows presidents of all parties to protect areas of cultural scientific value. So people are probably familiar with everything from the Statue of Liberty to the Grand Canyon. And these are places that were protected originally by the Antiquities Act and created as national monuments. And then Congress usually follows up and protects them in perpetuity. This is how we've gotten... Perpetuity, important word. In perpetuity, forever and ever. It's how we've gotten many, many, many of our national parks and areas that people really strongly value. And one of the key parts of President Obama's climate legacy was not only the part about looking at reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, but then protecting large landscapes that really help our country be more resilient in terms of uh, adapting to climate change. And then beyond that, he happened to be president while the Park Service celebrated its 100th anniversary. And as part of that, he really saw it his responsibility to tell the story of all the civil rights struggles that this nation has had. So many of the national monuments that he protected told those stories. So Stonewall in uh, New York City, then we had Cesar Chavez Monument in California and Chimney Rock in Colorado. And then one of the last monuments that he protected ended up being one of the most controversial, which is Bear Ears National Mm -hmm. Monument in Utah, where an unprecedented number of uh, tribes came together and recognized this place in southern Utah as hugely valuable to their culture Mm -hmm. and to their history and their background. And they said, this is our, you know, most prized area, and we want to protect that for future generations. So first tried to work very closely with the Utah delegation to craft legislation. And when that was not possible. And when they were not able to get that through Congress, they worked with uh, President Obama and our administration to protect it as a national monument. So what happened at the beginning of the Trump administration, as with all that they've been trying to do to undo Obama's legacy, is they did a full review of all national monuments going back to 19, the early 1990s. So everything that was done by Obama, Uh, President Bush and then previously President Clinton, they narrowed it down to a shorter list of 27 national monuments Mm -hmm. all across the country and uh, ocean monuments as well. And then in a way, we thought to maybe get um, some good press along the way because they were getting a lot of pushback for Mm -hmm. what this review was and what the criteria was. Uh, Secretary Zinke seemed to pardon a monument here or a monument there and say, "Okay, these are these are no longer um, being considered for any kind of changes. What's uh, really important to recognize here is that the president has the power to protect these places for future generations. There is no process requirement. Mm -hmm. They are protected based on the values that the community and the president 
really holds as important for the future of this country. So the fact that Secretary Zinke has really been looking at these monuments kind of in a black box without any criteria as to what he's going to decide. Right. And or, without conversations with the with communities. A, yeah, he's, been, he's gone to a few communities, but not even close to all of the communities for the monuments that he's reviewing, uh, calls into question a what is the sincerity of this review? Mm-hmm. What are they really getting at? And who are they responding to? And when you really put that question on the table, looking at the rest of what the Trump administration has done, it politically looks like they are driven by where can they get access to oil and gas? Where do we have other minerals that they feel like they want to access? And then just harsh political reality of trying to eliminate President Obama's legacy and anything that is connected to that. It's just unbelievable. It feels like, you know, making a sort of wealth stripping opportunity of our public resources for a few companies and individuals. Well, Um, and just given the discussion you had in the first half hour, there's so much uh, placed on um, protecting Confederate monuments right now. And you've heard the president talk about uh, he wants, you know, he wants all those monuments. And then even the vice president saying he wants more monuments. They're talking about other types of monuments. In this case, uh, if we're talking about Native Americans and really uh, tribal rights, there seems to be no respect for the cultural value of those monuments and what's important in this case. Totally. A complete double standard. And Annette, you know, your organization in in Battleborn Progress, you know, you're really in the middle of this um, fight on the ground in Nevada um, because public lands have been a huge issue over the past few years in Nevada, I I seem to remember some sort of takeover that happened. Um, And there are monuments in Nevada like Gold Buttes and Basin and Range that are under threat. Can you just tell us a little bit about the spaces that are under threat in your state and sort of what's at stake for Nevadans? Yeah, absolutely. We've been working on the public lands issues for about four or five years now. It's an issue that's very near and dear to my heart. As a native Nevadan, somebody who's born and raised there, these these are all of our lands. And we're really trying to protect these special places for future generations. And so it's been incredibly uh, disheartening, disgusting to watch this monument review process move forward because, frankly, you can you can see the writing on the wall. What they basically want to do is take these resources and then allow mining and allow all these other extractive industries to come in and ruin these beautiful places. And, you know, when, you, when we when we had our five-minute meeting with Zinke, when he came, Secretary Zinke, when he came to Nevada, after he, after he canceled all the meetings because he had to rush back for a meeting with the, um, with the administration because he had just fired the chief of staff, you know. <laughs> Typical. Un- sounds sounds pretty common. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible to watch just the, the level of disrespect Secretary Zinke had for folks like the tribes in our state and and folks on the ground who have been working on these monuments for years because, you know, he completely, you know, he was supposed to have a meeting, a, a 45 to an hour uh, meeting, 45 minutes to an hour meeting with uh, folks on the ground in Mesquite with friends of Gold Butte and, and the tribes and other people. And that meeting got canceled. And then he went out to Gold Butte to tour it with some politicians and some folks running for office with the Republican Party. Like, it's abundantly clear what they're trying to do with this review. And, you know, like the other speaker said before, it, it's so disrespectful because, you know, we have tribes that these these places are where their great-grandparents were born. They're, you know, this is where their family has lived for, for 
you know, so long. And yet, at the same time, he's willing to, or the administration's so willing to step out and protect these racist monuments. Yet, when it comes to our Native American folks, you know, they're not willing to protect those special places where their families have lived for eons. And so... The whole thing is just a sham, and it's unacceptable, and we're calling on the leaders in our state, both Governor Sandoval, Senator Heller, and all of our, our, represent, our representatives in our state to really stand up for these monuments and protect them, because they're, they're for our future generations, and if we don't protect them now, we'll never get them back. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to go to the phones really quick, because we have a caller um, calling in about this, um, Dean from Buffalo, New York. Dean, are you on the, on the line? Yep. Um, you know, I just have to say, as a nature lover, as, as a... All right, I'm going to try to talk again. As a nature lover... <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. As a nature lover, um, it it really infuriates me what uh, Trump is doing. You know, I don't know if you saw the weekend update with Tina Fey, where she came out with the sheet cake and everything like that. But she said something that mm-hmm. totally defines who Donald Trump is. If he could make money off of these um, state parks, because uh, that's all he cares about is making money. If he could put up some crappy condos, he would do this in a second. Um, and it's just outrageous. It's like he's selling all the natural treasures of America out for uh, um, an added profit. I, I, I totally agree. So, Dean, this is Christy. I just want to say there is, you know, I, I agree with you, but don't lose hope because one thing we did not mention at the top here is that the legal scholars are pretty unified in their uh, interpretation that it will be illegal for President Trump to take any significant action to shut down these national monuments or really dramatically decrease the size. There is lots of case law, and I won't get into all the details, but presidents have power to do thing con- do things congress gives them power to take actions to protect a certain place that doesn't mean they have the same power to unprotect and it would be a a pretty feckless law if it was that every president could come in and do something and then the next one under that same exact authority would be able to undo it so uh, we believe that there is um, strong Uh, legal justification here to push back on the Trump administration and certainly the tribes with respect to Bears Ears in Utah and many of these other cases are already prepared to jump quickly if their national monument or uh, their particular cultural site is threatened by this review. We also have lots of valuable data as to the economic value of these places. I mean, the Outdoor Industry Association has really grown in popularity and grown in sophistication and how they measure what they offer to the local communities there. And it's over $800 billion. So there is a real um, legitimate uh, implication for these communities that will lose those dollars as soon as uh, whatever national monument is shut down or dramatically decreased or any confusion that is created uh, to any visitors that might be looking to visit these places. So, um, 
you are not alone in feeling really discouraged by what the the motivation is behind this entire review. But I will say that I feel like history's on our side, the legal system is on our side, and local communities that worked for decades to get these places protected and Native communities that have worked to get these places connected are really focused on uh, challenging this review and making sure that their places continue to be protected in the future. And thank you so much for calling in, Dean. Um, And I think just to go back to one of the things that Christy was saying, and Annette, I'd love to have you weigh in on this. And it's um, it is in some ways about making money, but I think it's also about who is making money and where is that money going? So if um, the motivation behind getting rid of a national monument like Bears Ears, if part of that is so that oil and gas companies can have that place open up to development, that's not necessarily... um, uh, you know, it's it's not a, it, uh, uh, as if there there isn't um, huge economic benefits for these monuments um, from things like the outdoor industry and things like that. I know that there was a study from the outdoor recreation industry that said um, that it's an $887 billion industry in terms of consumer spending. So especially for some of these areas that are benefiting um, from that tourism and that outdoor recreation, this, this really will have an impact on... On local economies and I think it's a question of are we going to have the local economies getting these this money or some of these bigger companies um, you know with some of these rollbacks of protections but and I know this is something that has been, has been a huge part of the discussion in Nevada and um, how is that pl- how is this playing out there yeah well we see folks who are in the tourism industry uh, in particular speaking out for the monuments because there's overwhelming support in Nevada for our national monuments. You know, over 80% of Nevadans polled support continuing to protect these special places for future generations. And, you know, the, the economic impacts are great because, you know, Gold Butte, for instance, is our piece of the Grand Canyon. And as you drive out to Gold Butte, or as you drive to the, to the actual Grand Canyon, you actually go right, if you're coming from Las Vegas, you go right past Gold Butte. And most people don't know it's there, but if we were to actually invest resources in letting people know it's there, letting people know it's equally as stunning as the Grand Canyon, and there's so many important geological and historical things within the monument, if we were to educate people about that, put some resources into that, we could see our tourism numbers and our economic numbers shoot through the roof, especially for a small community like Mesquite, which is right outside of Gold Butte National Monument. And so we've done our own studies that show that, you know, these monuments would be an economic boon to the local communities. And we're already starting to see some of those effects by having the National Monument and having people now know that this special place is there. And so, you know, the more we can do to invest in these monuments, let folks know that they're there, and we can invest in ecotourism, especially in a place like Nevada. You know, we have so many amazing outdoor spaces and many people move to Nevada because of our wide open spaces and our public lands. And as a Nevadan, you know, public lands are, are really important to us because 87% of our state is owned by the federal government. And that's what we did to become a state and gave those lands to the federal government. And so as a, as oh, a Nevadan, so these places should be invested in and we should be get, continuing to protect these places and not have these extractive industries come in and ruin a place like this. We've even seen mining companies in Nevada speak up for these monuments and say that they want them preserved. So at the end of the day, you know, the Trump administration is completely off base. They don't understand the local communities. They don't understand the states. 
And I don't understand what actual Nevadans and folks all over the country really want from these monuments, and they want them to be protected. Amen. Well, we're, we're running out of time here. So before we go, thank you so much, Annette, from Battleborn Progress for jump, for coming on the show. Um, where can people find Battleborn Progress? Um, where, where can they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, we're out there talking about things today. We just had Trump in Nevada this morning, and we were actually out there talking about how this, this decision is going to come down. Hope, we're hoping in the next couple of days so we know what we're responding to. And we hope that our monuments are spared and that all the monuments are spared because if one if one monument's under attack, they're all under attack. But at the end of the day, if, if folks want to get involved with us, you can follow Battleborn Progress on Facebook or Twitter. Just go online, look for Battleborn Progress. And then you can also go to our website, which is battlebornprogress.org. Absolutely. And for folks that want to follow the conversation online, check out hashtag Save Our Outdoors. This is The Leslie Marshall Show. Want to know the coolest thing about St. Pete Clearwater? We'll give you a hint. It's not the beach. It's Central Ave. This is St. Pete at its funkiest, foodiest, and most fun. It's where street art meets sidewalk cafes and one-of-a-kind boutiques, where everyone is welcome, even dogs, and where the coolest craft breweries meet the city's hottest nightlife. So think outside the beach. Get to know St. Pete's coolest street and experience centralave.com.